الجزيرة بودكاست A private military group that Russia is said to rely on. A recent row involving Wagner in Ukraine has revealed its role in the war there. So who's behind this group and how is it serving Russia's global outreach? I'm Tom McRae and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyse and help define major global stories. But for more on this, I'm joined by our guests. Uh, in Tbilisi is Peter Yeltsov, Associate Professor of International Security Affairs at the National Defence University. In Washington, D.C. is Katrina Doxy, an Associate Director and Fellow at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. And Nico Vorobyov, an independent journalist whose location is undisclosed for security reasons. A warm uh, welcome uh, to you all. Thank you very much for being on Inside Story. If I can begin with you, Peter, in, in the last week or so, a Wagner Group has claimed it now controls uh, a key village uh, near Bakhmut and is making gains around there. I mean, can you just give us a bit of an overview of how effective they have been as a fighting force in Ukraine so far? They've been pretty effective compared to, like, other components um, of the Russian invasion. I see uh, three major components, the regular army, the Chechen battalions and the Wagner Group. Uh, of course, the question is that their effectiveness was due to enormous brutality. Uh, the Pentagon estimates their numbers up to possibly 40,000-50,000 people, and 80% or even 90% of uh, uh, the people are convicts, uh, basically brought directly from jails. Uh, this is uh, like a very reminiscent uh, of the Stalinist practice uh, during World War II, and I would say even worse. Uh, so um, their effectiveness comes from their brutality and uh, from the fact that these are not uh, basically regular or army obeying, following uh, any kind of um, uh, rules of war, um, and this clearly causes conflict. Mm. Nico, you've spoken and interviewed uh, members or former members of the Wagner Group. What have they told you about what it's like uh, from the inside? Basically, Wagner Group, it was founded in the, the aftermath of the original uh, phase of the, the war in Donbass, which was 2014-2015. Uh, so it's made up of, of a lot of, uh, of the veterans of that war. Um, but basically, uh, what, I, what I've heard from, from most of them, and it's also backed up by some of the, uh, the interrogation videos that the Ukrainians sometimes post, is basically... Most of them are in it for the for the money. I mean, like there's some there's some of them who try to dress it up as something uh, more patriotic, you know, fighting for the motherland. But really, like their main motivation is money. What do they say though? What what it's like fighting for them? What's the organization like inside? The well, the the guys I I talk to like they I haven't talked to anyone who's fought in the recent war. Talk to, to to Wagnerites who fought in Syria and some other combat zones. At that time, it was mainly made up of uh, former professional soldiers, people with military experience. So at that time, it was fairly disciplined. I mean, there were some some incidents, like there was the the famous story with the Syrian army deserter who got executed and beheaded. Mm. Um, but generally, they they say that it was a very disciplined fighting force. How it is now, however. Now they're basically taking in everybody and anybody, uh, taking in convicts. Uh, just because you can kill someone doesn't necessarily make you a good soldier. 
structure. So I'm not sure how they're like on the discipline front now. Okay. Katrina, can you just give us a, an idea of the man behind the Wagner Group, Prigozhin? I mean, he's got a, a pretty um, brutal reputation as being, you know, incredibly cruel and, and callous, but he's also extremely powerful, isn't he? Yes, and actually, I think we've seen over the course of the past year, as the war has gone on, he's really taken this as an opportunity to assert his power and to try to move up and better his political position, strengthen his relationship with Vladimir Putin. So Prigozhin has long been the leader of the Wagner Group, uh, but he actually last fall finally admitted that publicly mm. for the first time. Prior to that, he actually went so far as to bring lawsuits against researchers and media outlets that published anything accusing him of being linked to Wagner. And last fall, we had an absolute about-face where he came out publicly acknowledging that he was involved in the founding and is now the leader of the Wagner Group. And shortly thereafter, he began to appear in a variety of propaganda and recruitment videos, including on the front lines, uh, of course, the videos of him recruiting directly mm. out of prisons in Russia. And about a month afterward, Wagner established its first headquarters in St. Petersburg, notably on Russian soil, despite private military companies technically being illegal under Russian legal code. What so you... all of this, I think, points to the fact that you know, he's, he's much more confident in his position uh, relative to Putin and using Wagner in the war is allowing him to better his political fortunes. Mm. Although now we are, of course, seeing him feuding with those in the Ministry of Defense and various other uh, political leaders. Yeah, Peter, I just wanted to, to talk about this a little bit. Um, I mean, he's gone public in, in, in a big way, criticising the Russian military and calling out uh, Moscow's bureaucracy and blaming them for some of the failures uh, that Russia has seen uh, in the fighting. I mean, it, he's recently just posted a picture on social media showing dozens of Wagner soldiers lying dead on the ground, saying their deaths were because of a lack of ammunition. And we recently uh, saw that the, the defence Ministry has called that absolutely untrue. I mean, what do you think uh, his rationale is for, for coming out and speaking so publicly and criticising uh, so many people in power, like the Russian military and, and Moscow's uh, bureaucracy? I think he actually, in this case, uh, he may be gen generally sincere and frustrated because he thinks that he brought some minor victories in the past and he thinks of the Russian army as not very efficient. And from his perspective, he's right. The Russian army, the regular army, is today a colonial army. Uh, a very significant percentage uh, of conscripts or, or people who joined the army come from the national minorities, different nationalities of Dagestan, Buryatia, the poorest of the poor. I, right now, am visiting Tbilisi. The city is filled with Russian kids, 20-year-olds who escaped from St. Petersburg and Moscow. So the Russian professional army, regular army, is extremely ineffective. But in the end of the day, these are fantastic news for Ukraine because if different portions of this Russian invasion force, massive force, are fighting each other, that's good news for, th for them. And there are possible scenarios here. One scenario, say Putin decides to get rid of Prigozhin, that's great news for Ukraine. Mm. If uh, oh, Prigozhin and Wagner Group keep fighting with the regular force of the Russian army, 
and plus the Chechen battalions, which I also think are kind of a semi-autonomous force, because I don't believe they have allegiance to Russia. They really have allegiance to Kadyrov and Putin. So, uh, yeah, this is, uh, uh, in fact, it's horrible to say, but it's good news for the world and for Ukraine. Right. Nico, I mean, the Wagner groups have been taking massive losses. I think more than 30,000 uh, dead at this stage. I mean, are they just being used as cannon fodder? And how does uh, the Wagner group go um, about replacing them if, as they've said, they're not going to recruit from inside prisons anymore? Uh, well, that's actually part of the whole point of, of Wagner group, as I understand it. So uh, the first kind of major conflict they were deployed in was Syria. And Syria was sold to the Russian public back home as sort of like this bloodless war, good war, so PlayStation warfare. So it was basically just sold as airstrikes, right? Not that there were boots on the ground, but there were boots on the ground. And those boots on the ground were Wagner. And the, the reason they were deployed was basically, yeah, uh, they were... Or they were canceled because they don't come up on the official list of Russian casualties. Mm. So you can lose as many of them as you can, as you want, and it's uh, it'll, it'll still look like a bloodless war because, like the official soldiers, like the conscripts, aren't dying. I mean, they look like a bloodless war on the on the Russian side. But how do you go about replacing them if you're losing that many men so quickly? They're saying that they're stopping recruitment from prison, but you know, the war. They also said they wouldn't be mobilization um it's very hard to tell what's going on kind of behind the scenes uh of uh of like an authoritarian government like what's what's with gigosians like beefing with the with the regular army so like i wouldn't i wouldn't put too much into like any official pronouncements like oh yeah we've stopped recruiting content maybe they stopped for now but they're going to start doing it later or maybe there's going to be, there's also talk of another wave of mobilization, just of general conscripts as well. Okay. Uh, Katrina, who, who does the Wagner Group actually report to and, and get orders from? I mean, is it the Russian military or is it directly from Putin? Uh, or do they just pretty much do what they want? Wagner reports back to Prigozhin. Uh, he is their leader, although his actions are, of course, closely discussed with Putin to make sure that the things Wagner is doing are in line with the goals of the Russian state. So notably, Wagner is not officially connected to the Russian military or the Russian government. It's more of this informal link, even though we see them clearly carrying out Russia's goals. And actually, uh, we've seen that they actually operate a training base that is co-located with a Spetsnaz training base near Molkino, Russia. And in some of their other deployments farther afield, including in sub-Saharan Africa, they've mm. actually worked alongside Russian military troops and Russian intelligence personnel. Okay, Peter. I mean, uh, Prigozhin's obviously known uh, Putin for for what, well over two decades, and they've had a very, very close relationship. But because of some of his criticism that we've seen over the last few weeks, I mean, is there now tension in that relationship, and and how do you think that's been affected? Um, well, it's very difficult to predict with Putin what's going to happen. But we know that Putin betrayed many of his pals. There have mm. been people who've been uh, escaping to Washington, to Europe. So, I mean, if he goes too far and he aggravates Putin, yeah, he can sacrifice him. I do not think that Putin will get rid of the uh, mercenaries because it's exactly, um, as Mr. Vorobyov said, this is, um, I mean, this is a, a basically a unaccounted casualties. 
it's great to have that kind of a mercenary whole army because if you lose like 10,000 people or 5,000 extra people, you don't have to actually properly consider them as casualties. What happened, for mm -hmm. example, in Syria several years ago that actually the U.S. Uh, special forces killed a whole bunch of Wagner uh, people and Putin didn't feel like he had to react because they're not considered the, the regular Russian army. I do think that, yes, if he goes too far in conflict uh, with such an open conflict uh, with Gerasimov um, and Shoigu, uh, yeah, Putin may dispose him. What do you think, uh, Nico? Do you think that um, Prigozhin's at risk of putting his head above the parapet and, and putting himself in danger long term? Yeah, the, the basically the way uh, Putin controls his power in, in Russia generally is he kind of splits his, he, ke he keeps his, his own court split up. So you have like Kadyrov, the Kadyrov sort of faction, Igorzhin's faction, the army faction, like if you go back, back on the home front, you know, like the MVD, the FSB, uh, they've had their feuds in the past. Um, yeah, uh, potentially, if if uh, if Rigozhin runs out of favor, then then things could definitely go south for him. Um, but I'm, it's hard to tell what's happening behind uh, behind closed doors. Yeah, indeed. Um, Katrina, you uh, mentioned uh, just a couple of minutes ago uh, Wagner's uh, presence in Africa, which is you know, rather major. Can you just give us an idea of exactly what their role is there and what they're trying to achieve? Sure. So over the past roughly six years, Wagner has seriously expanded its presence in Africa, and particularly sub-Saharan Africa. So in those cases, rather than operating directly as a force multiplier working alongside Russian military efforts, they are partnering with governments uh, in local countries that typically uh, these countries have weak governance, ongoing security challenges, and rich natural resources. And so Wagner comes in often underbidding competitors in terms of what their monthly salary is for operating uh, alongside local forces. And they're able to offer security services, training services, combat expertise, uh, information operations, and intelligence support, all in exchange for furthering Moscow's geopolitical goals and gaining access to those natural resources in many cases. This is typically done via mining concessions mm. for accessing gold and gemstones, and in some cases, natural energy resources as well. Peter, uh, what are Putin's and, and Russia's geopolitical goals in, in Africa? Big question, great question. Um, as, yes, natural resources, influence, but I would also say politically, Putin likes to uh, protect um, different dictators because it's much easier for an authoritarian regime to work with authoritarian regimes. So I think um, it's filling the vacuum uh, in um, Central Africa right now. Mali, um, Central African Republic, Burkina Faso and Mali had a coup and um, the Americans withdrew from there uh, basically because of some legal considerations and so forth. Who is filling the niche? The Russians and the Chinese. Chinese are going through the uh, e economic uh, sort of, I would even call it economic colonialism. Uh, Russia also wants to exactly get concessions for the natural resources, but also get control, um, get good relations with the dictatorial 
regimes. And if you look also, uh, Minister Foreign Minister Lavrov made several tools in Africa because unfortunately, the global South uh, has some, if not sympathy, but understanding um, for Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, it's more like, I would say, a kind of a protest support because of the anti-Western, anti-colonial, uh, anti-American sentiments, even South Africa kind of uh, taking a neutral position there. So Lavrov already went on several tours. So they badly need that support um, to get, because that presents like, look, those poor post-colonial countries support us on what they present as anti-colonial campaign, which is in reality colonial in Ukraine. So it's a very multifaceted phenomenon, economical, political consideration, ideological consideration. Uh, Russia never really colonized Africa, so there is no sentiment of hostility uh, as there is towards, of course, the Europeans. Yeah. Uh, Katrina, what, what does Africa get out of the deals that it does with, uh, with Wagner? So it really is um, sort of a specific subset of countries that are most likely to be working with Wagner and where we've seen these agreements. So as my colleague has mentioned, Russia and Wagner tend to work with these more authoritarian autocratic regimes, often those like in Mali, where you have a military junta that has recently gained power through a coup. And so in many of these cases, what the local government is doing, while it's often under the guise of addressing security needs in the country, whether that's the threat of rebel groups like in the CAR or jihadists like in Mali, actually the goal is really more about securing the regime itself, what we refer to as coup-proofing. So they know that they gained power through violent and illegitimate means, and they want to ensure that that doesn't happen again to them. Mm. And so there's this mutually reinforcing partnership where Wagner is able to ensure the strength and longevity of the regime, and in exchange, in addition to the financial gains that it's making, it's also able to secure these geopolitical and military goals, so gaining influence for Moscow, uh, having the ability to project military and intelligence power on the continent. Um, and really, I think spreading that, spreading that influence and that power projection to a degree that we haven't really seen since the end of the Cold War. Yeah, Peter, you mentioned before um, Sergei Lavrov's tour uh, of Africa um, not too long ago. I mean, how important is uh, Africa's or some of those countries in Africa, their support uh, for Vladimir Putin and this war? Well, I think it's symbolic. Uh, it's not as important, but they want to show kind of a, they see how ostracized they are today from the Western community, European community. So they want to play this card um, that, uh, look, uh, the poorest countries in the world or countries which has been brutally colonized uh, by the Europeans uh, uh, now support us. So they want that kind of a moral support, I would say, or I, at least I would say not support us, but are not against us and have an understanding for this war, which they try to present as a, some kind of a crazily anti-colonial war. So I would say it's symbolic rather than um, uh, really practical, mm. but they also want to have trade. They want to sell arms. Uh, they want to support those authoritarian regimes. That's right. But I would say still it's more of an ideological symbolic.
Katrina, if we can just bring it back to uh, the Wagner Group's uh, role in Ukraine uh, before uh, we finish up this programme. I mean, what do you think is, is the future of the group there? Do you think that they're going to, uh, you know, keep digging in and, and keep fighting for Putin, or do you think they'll be overrun by uh, the Ukrainian forces? I mean, I think that they very well may have set backs on parts of the line where they're overrun by the Ukrainians, but I don't think that that would lead to their complete removal from Ukraine unless it does come down to Prigozhin overstepping and being disciplined by Putin. I think that Wagner plays a unique role in that Russia is not held accountable to the families of the soldiers and recruits who are killed uh, while serving in the Wagner group. They're not responsible for paying out any kind of compensation or benefits to those families. Those numbers are not added to their casualty numbers. They help to actually reduce the number of formal Russian soldiers who need to be killed if they're able to take control of parts of the line. And so, yes, we do see that they have been struggling on parts of the line. They have been really just using recruits as cannon fodder in these waves of infantry that are attacking. But ultimately, they're also serving both as a force multiplier for Moscow and they're taking some of the pressure off of the Russian military. And given the large number of setbacks that the Russian military has faced over the past year and likely will continue to struggle with, I think that they're an important component of just reducing the overall negative impact that Moscow is experiencing during the war. Yeah. Peter, do you think that Putin is going to continue using the Wagner Group in, in the way that he has done? And uh, they're still going to be a, a major part of, of his war? And uh, I mean, what impact do you think that they're going to have over the next uh, six to potentially 12 months, if not longer? They will definitely uh, will use some kind of a mercenary force, whether it's a Wagner Group, another group, uh, whether Prigozhin goes, uh, because it's exactly, uh, as Katrina said, it's a very easy way uh, to have a lot of casualties, and it's also an, an incredibly uh, easy way to have a very brutal tactics of war. When you get, when uh, the morale in the Russian army, as I said, in the regular army is so low, because what a reason a poor Dagestani boy has to fight in Ukraine or a boy from Buryatia, when all Russians from affluent families flee the country en masse. So uh, the only way to have an effective army to send professional criminals there. This is actually incredible. I don't think it has been done even during World War II by Stalin. And of course, there were reasons that was a just war for the Soviet citizens after they were invaded by Nazi Germany. So, so this is a case, uh, I think, a very unique for Russian history in terms of its brutality of war. And I think he will continue doing that because he sees that the, the war is actually ineffective. So far, not a single major big city has been taken. Kharkiv has not been taken. Mariupol has been taken. Uh, they're fighting the war for the places no one have ever heard about, mm -hmm. like Bakhmut. And even Bakhmut is not fully taken yet. So yes, as long as he continues the war, and he will continue the war, it became um, basically the business of his life. Uh, he will use some kind of mercenaries. OK, Katrina, I'd like you, uh, just before we finish up here, to, to gaze into your crystal ball. And one year on from the, the invasion, and one year from now, where do you think uh, things are going to stand? Yeah, I think that, you know, we're going to continue to see 
um, Russian, Russian failures and increased Russian desperation. We've already seen them turn to bringing in, of course, the prisoner recruits and others who are conscripted in. In addition to the, those recruited from Russian prisons, we've seen uh, particularly Wagner pulling recruits from prisons in some of the places it's operating, including actually taking rebels that they were fighting against that they had imprisoned in the Central African Republic and shipping them up to Ukraine to fight, bringing in recruits desperate for paychecks from some of the other regions where they're active. And I think we're going to increasingly see the composition of those forces change and ultimately change in the direction of being increasingly less experienced and increasingly operating based on fear of what happens to them if they do not comply rather than any sort of true discipline or military training. Okay. And I think that that's just a vicious cycle for Russia that will just lead to more losses. Okay, thank you so much for your time uh, on Inside Story, all three of you. Uh, Peter Yeltsov, Katrina Doxy, and Nico Vorobyov, thank you so much for joining us. This episode was produced by Mohamed Alachi, Osama Aloni, Abla Kla, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Hasib Hashmi. The program was edited by Anil Anandan, Lynn Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch each and every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Monday for our next episode. Thank you.